0: episode 141 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 30th of August 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim, Evening, Graham, Hello, and Gary. Hello. Gary, oh yes, you're from Late Night Linux Extra. It's the one I've teleported over here. It's a
1: hostile takeover.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so Will is on holiday, and Gary has kindly stepped into his shoes, so thank you very much for that. Let's start with first impressions then. And so we have all had a look at elementary OS, which describes itself as the thoughtful, capable, and ethical replacement for Windows and macOS. That macOS thing is going to come up again, I suspect. But uh, what did we all think about this then? Phelan, what did you think of it?
2: Well, I felt dirty for choosing $0 as the download (laughs) amount I was purchasing it for. Uh, So yeah, wait, wait to catch me feeling bad at the very start, but no... It looks really nice. It's a nice consistent interface. I was a bit dismayed to find that there was no English Ireland. I had to select English UK and then I couldn't actually type my own name in because I couldn't get a fod on my E until I discovered the international keyboard setting, which seemed to be the one that worked right. Hang on, surely you just go to our About page and copy-paste it like I do every time? <laughs> no, the Alt-GR key, or the right Alt-key, that with an E, that's how I get mine, uh, and a 4 gives me a Euro symbol. I could get the Euro symbol easy enough all right. But then I was a bit confused, because when I was using the browser to test that, I right-clicked to see uh, shortcuts for doing things, which is quite a handy feature. But... A odd key showed up, and I was suspicious as to what it was because I had never seen that. Um, I've never used a Mac, and apparently I asked you about it, Joe, and it's the command key, is it? Yeah, so the command key is super, isn't it? Yeah, or the Windows key for most people. Yeah, so initially I thought I'd selected the wrong keyboard. I thought, oh, I've picked a Mac keyboard then. I went back and checked, no, it was the international windows Expanded key and i couldn't understand what this key was for and then you sent me a link checked it up yeah and it's all because of they couldn't put a windows symbol they didn't want to put super and they didn't want to add their own branding of e so they went with the mac keyboard, which i think is really
3: weird because i know it's meant to be ease of use but I've never seen one of them before. Yeah, I think that is a weird choice. I totally agree because it's going to be difficult to run it natively on Macs. I suppose you could run it in a VM. But also for macOS, the command and option keys are endlessly the most confusing part of macOS for me. So I would drop that at the first chance. So Gary, what do you think of it then? I quite liked it. I had a few little
1: weird things similar to Failim. The user interface was nice. It was pretty consistent. It looked really nice. Chose a dark theme pretty early on. I liked the color accent stuff, which I think is pretty new in OS 6. But for me, the biggest thing was around software selection. So obviously, they've got this kind of flat pack first attitude towards installing apps. That was great until I went into the app store and tried to install Audacity. So I went across to media production and there was absolutely nothing in there, which was it's a little bit strange to say the least. So I thought, no worries, I'll try and sideload it. So I downloaded the Audacity Flatpak from Flathub, opened it up, uh, and it just hung at, I assume it was trying to grab some kind of like publisher info, but it just completely hung. And then I had to quit it, reopened it, and then it installed absolutely fine and worked as I'd expect to say. Software selection for me, I found to be a bit limiting especially with you know things that you would expect, like staples like LibreOffice, Audacity, that kind of stuff that most people are probably installing. But of course, you do have the option to
0: open a terminal and just use apt if you want to, because this is based on Ubuntu. You do, but
1: it very much felt like it was pushing you away from doing that. So I tried to follow what I thought would be the most accepted path by the developers. and It tries to be very user-friendly say, so I think any normal user installing this who's not familiar with Linux is probably going to go to the software center straight off. And if you can't find those staple applications that you expect, it's going to be a little bit difficult if you're not a regular Linux user to go apt installing something. Totally agreed on that, yeah. And that is their target market, I think, is recent converts. Yeah, I mean, they don't even call it you know a Linux distro, right? It's a friendly replacement for Mac OS and Windows say, they try and hide the fact that it's even Linux in the first place.
0: I don't think it's fair to say they hide it, but they definitely call it an operating system and they don't put it front and center. But if you dig through the the website and documentation, they, they do talk about it being open source and based on Linux and stuff. So yeah, I think hide is the wrong
1: word, but you, you kind of sparking up the right tree there. Yeah, I think you have to do some digging, right? If you were just downloading this because you thought it was something you could install on your machine that wasn't Windows, but you weren't familiar with Linux, you'd have to do some digging to find what its underpinnings were. And I did see in the about screen, it says that it's built on top of Ubuntu 2004. But that was the only obvious hint that I saw other than, like you say, going digging in the docs.
0: So, Graham, you are quite familiar with macOS, staring at it right now. I know that the elementary (laughs) folks don't like to be compared with macOS, but I think that it is quite similar, isn't it, in its layout, at least.
3: I've just referred to my notes written in the Apple Notes app. (laughs) (laughs) Firstly, I think... The good stuff is that they've got a real knack for design. I think the designers working on elementary OS do a really good job. It's a really difficult job. Um And I think mostly, it, I really like the look of it. Yes, it apes macOS in a lot of ways. I mean, in a lot of ways, I don't like um, the limited settings, obviously, I suppose, and the limited options in things like the file manager. But then they get a lot of stuff right with consistency, with the notifications, and I've used Elementary quite a lot. In fact, I installed it on one of my daughter's laptops a few years ago rather than Mint or something like that because I thought she'd find it more familiar and easy to use. But in the end, it's like Gary said, in the end you kind of hit the envelope of things that you need to do with it that are common and you need to sometimes push beyond what Elementary OS has built. And that's when it starts to fall down. Um, it's fine with the default apps and I really appreciate the effort they're going to. In fact... Um, even on my, um, other Linux install, I installed the mail app, which is developed specifically for elementary OS, but just because I've been desperately looking for a new mail app for ages. And I love the design and love what they're doing, but it just, it's, it's only 20% there or 30% there. And I, I, it'd be great if development continued and things kept being added rather than maybe always the emphasis on design. And maybe that's what elementary OS 7 needs to focus on. Another thing I tried is that I actually have Linux running natively on a MacBook Pro. Um, I won't mention the distro. The touchpad works really well. I use M input with Xorg, um, and I've got multi-touch working. And I wanted to try the same in elementary OS because it boasts some excellent touchpad gestures. And I've got an an external Bluetooth uh, touchpad, and I couldn't get that to work. And so I wasn't able to try the the touchpad gestures. But otherwise, I think that's another really good step if I could have got that to work.
0: Yeah, they do emphasise those gestures quite a lot, but I use just a mouse on a desktop
3: machine, so it's not something I was able to try. I mean, I've made a list of the small things that really got me. The font is nice. I think it's a new font, but I like a denser font. I couldn't get the applets to appear that I usually run. There was no high DPI configuration for my display. There was some scaling. but I, And the dark mode, really nice having a dark mode like that and only working with kind of the native apps. But it, I wish it went further. And I actually find KD Plasma works really well with a the dark theme these days. Um, so I don't know if they're locking it in or they're just trying to force people into the elementary experience, which is a good thing to do, except for it only goes so far. And that's my main problem with it, I think. Yeah, I think it was the same for me, Graham. A lot of the inbuilt apps were really
1: nice and really slick, but code, for example, didn't have support for some of the languages I was trying to use. And there was just a few other things where I felt like I needed to go outside of the like elementary blessed ecosystem in order to do it. And it was nice that I could do those things, but it felt like I was pushing beyond what their developers had really intended. Yeah, that was my experience with it as well. I looked in the App Center
0: and there just wasn't much there because I know they're getting everyone to put their applications over to Flatpak and that takes a while. And so ultimately, I just ended up doing what I would do on a Ubuntu system, which is open a terminal and use apt. And one of the things I installed was SnapD, and then I installed some snaps and got those going. And so you have that Ubuntu base. You can do all the stuff you can do with an Ubuntu system, but that isn't what they want you to do. and they don't really want to support people who do stuff like that. So I'm kind of torn on it because if you really like the overall aesthetic of it, but then want to go a little bit outside of that, it's very easy to do so. But then does that take away the whole point of using it? I don't know. I mean, the the default browser, for example, just isn't very good. Hmm. What is that
2: default browser? Do you know? It's the GNOME one, isn't it? Yeah, it's just called Web. Ah, uh, Is that what it is? Okay, right. I mean, it looks it looks... Integrates so well into it that I really wasn't sure, and I don't use Chrome, so I'm, I'm not even sure what that looks like, to be honest. So- but to apt install Firefox is
0: trivial.
1: Yeah. I also noticed with that built-in browser that there was ad blocking built-in when I ventured into the settings, which was quite nice to see, given that it doesn't really support extensions from what I could tell.
0: Yeah, but then when I wanted to um, have a video call with Dan the other day, just a social call, it just wouldn't work with Google Meet. That browser, I had to use Firefox. No. Yeah. <laughs> But all in all, then, like I said before, I would definitely recommend people check it out, but it's clearly not for everyone. So let's see what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks' time when Will's back. I'm going to click to spin the wheel now, the pretty colors, and this is definitely... I'm not filming it, so you're not going to know this. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Gobo Linux. This is something that someone suggested, and I have no idea what it is. Uh, Me neither, yeah. So look forward to trying it out. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CrowdSec. Go to crowdsec.net. CrowdSec is a free and open source and collaborative Linux security solution designed to protect your servers, containers, services, apps, VMs, and more. Imagine a Ferrari losing a Formula One race to a 40-year-old Pinto with a broken headlight and two flat tires. That pretty much describes the asymmetrical cybersecurity industry. Money never solved the hacking problem. A new approach is needed, and CrowdSec wants to rebalance the odds and make security available to all for free. CrowdSec analyzes visitors' behavior and deals with malicious traffic. It offers an adapted response to credential stuffing, port scans, password brute forcing, and much more. Once an aggressive IP is identified, it's also shared across all users to ensure everyone's protection. So, if you want to join the community and protect your IT assets, visit crowdsec.net. That's crowdsec.net. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com contact. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. So as you're joining us, Gary, I thought it'd be a good opportunity for the annual wind fade him up (laughs) cloud discussion. Because you're all a shower bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now you work for a big cloud company who we won't mention because that's not hugely relevant, but you work with the cloud every day. I know that you are not one of these zealots who thinks everything should be in the cloud, but there are some clear benefits to it. Phelan, you are very much an on-premises person and will not use the cloud much unless you absolutely have to. I'm somewhere in between. Of course, our show is sponsored by Linode, which is a cloud company, and I think there is definitely a time and a place for it.
1: So, Gary, sell Phelim on the cloud, please. I dare you. <laughs> Where do I begin? Um, Phelim, I guess I counter the question to you is
2: why wouldn't you use the cloud? I think I need to clarify what I like. Last time I said I hate the cloud, everybody said, oh, it's fucking virtual machines are brilliant. Stop treating your servers like fucking pets, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yes, I clearly know the advantages of using a virtual machine. I use loads of virtual machines. I think you should try and run as many systems that you can in-house that use data that's important to you. But I feel an awful lot of companies have jumped on a bandwagon of cloud and have put absolutely everything they can into insert name of provider here. And a lot of those providers are very happy to take your data in and then when you try to get it out you're shafted because they'll charge you massive data rates. And I feel that a lot of the times in order to get the value from a cloud provider you have to go all in with a cloud provider. If you spread your data around, I think you're going to incur so many connection fees between various providers or complexity of your orchestration system where you're trying to, oh, well, we know the database is over in Azure and the web servers are over in AWS and all these types of things. I think you make such a horrific setup that I think we've gotten to the point where if you're not doing something that involves... Seventy-five servers, uh, three databases, and clustered all around the world. Nobody can take you seriously when all you want was a simple web page to sell a couple of like jackets or something like that.
1: Yeah, so I think it's interesting that you bring up about the data egress charges because it's no secret, right, that most cloud providers that are charging for per gigabyte on data are probably going to charge you very little to upload data, but comparatively more to download data is probably the kindest way to put it. And I think you're right in saying that, you know, going all in on a single cloud provider is probably the right way to do it. You are that way. I guess you're putting all of your eggs in one basket, but then we've never really seen a cloud provider exponentially increase their costs for data regress. I'd say in terms of the complexity of architecture, so as it really depends on. Who is actually deploying this stuff? Because it's all very well for us as sysadmins, right, to say you end up needing seventy VMs and three database servers and stuff to run a simple website. But I think the scale that companies put stuff in the cloud at, they're running more than just simple websites for the most part, right? These are complex microservice applications that you would struggle to get the resource
2: to run on-premises or at least have the kind of flexibility of resource. I think that's the problem, though. I think I think a lot of Silicon Valley hipsters have convinced a whole lot of people in Slough that they need to have a massive cloud infrastructure. And that's where the problem is, is that the vast majority of people don't need it. If you're Google, you need it. If you're running, you know, Washington Post, you probably need it or at least some form of cash at the front end. But I think a lot of people are just going, oh my God, we have to have these things or we're going to be backwards. People won't take us seriously if we don't have all these things. And I mean... The real danger I find is the fact that you're left so open to either say large portions of like Europe West dropping out or, you know, Azure North America blows up. We're now starting to the point where we're having like mass events of outages across continents or even several continents. And not to mention the fact that we have two massive hacks in the last few weeks that have gone in where they reckon that. About 80% of Americans' online data has been stolen and that they're working hard on the last 20%, you know, and that's everybody storing this. Things that don't need to be up there, up there. And, you know, you're making such a juicy target that if you can get into the back end of a system like happened to the Microsoft system just last week, Jim Salter from Two and a Half Admins had a piece in ARS Technica about it. And it, it's, they call it like a sort of the, the kind of hack that you dread to have where they can get access to everybody's database that was using this particular function to connect it to a Jupyter notebook. And, you know, you are just making such an easy target. Whereas the whole point of the internet is distributed systems where, you know, if somebody cuts through a cable or blows a data center up, you don't lose everything. But I think the Microsoft, one, I agree with you on, right,
1: that was a clear issue with that service. But some of the other stuff you mentioned feels like it could be architected around, say, so things like you
2: know losing an entire region is pretty rare in most cloud providers. I don't think it's as rare as we'd like to think. I mean, it's only a couple of weeks back that one of them went out. You get a lot of customers that will have architected their stuff to be in one or two availability
1: zones within those regions, and those availability zones are geographically disparate data centers within the same city, which is a lot more than a lot of smaller businesses were doing a while back, right? They would maybe have some kind of virtualization cluster where they would have two copies of an application in different racks within the same data center. So there is an element of making sure that you're architecting correctly in order that your stuff is split across multiple data centers. And the, the cloud, I guess, makes it easier than ever to do that. You're not having to rent space in a different colo and
2: buy separate hardware to put that stuff on. Sure, uh, but I think this is where generic VPSs or even rack mount servers, or dedicated server that you can buy off a provider that will just give you a generic system. Then you're just talking to a generic Linux box somewhere else and then another one somewhere else. And then between them, you're able to generate your own transfers, whatever, between the two. If you're relying on a provider you've essentially bought into their proprietary system a way of doing things. And, you know, you can't easily change those things. And I think we are losing a whole load of skills by the fact that everybody is just going to become, you know, oh yeah, I use the cloud. I'm I able to click this box here, that one there and read the EULA and then press OK. Hey, look at me, I'm a cloud architect. This is a slight bit, obviously, tongue in cheek, but I think we are losing really, really valuable skills when we do this.
1: It depends on how you build your application again, because yeah, if you are just using something like a like a VPS to build your applications, there's no reason that that couldn't just be a set of Linux VMs that you're, you're building your own connectivity between. And no one says that you have to use like a VPC peering between availability zone A and availability zone B in order to build your application. You could easily spin up something and put a wire guard tunnel between them as you yeah you know, would have done on premises or
2: so you could easily spin up a PF sense in the cloud on a VPS. It wouldn't even have to be as rudimentary as that though. I mean there are providers that will do it and you can get like whatever you can host your DNS with somebody else or whatever. But I just think overall where your DB server's not a DB server, it's you know it's some colossal backend box, all the various web servers, etc. I just think we're we're losing out there. You
1: have to question, right, at what point is Good enough, good enough, say, so, you know, something like a managed DB on a cloud provider. If you are small enough that you don't want to employ a DBA, you were probably just you know, spinning up a Maria DB on an instance and not optimizing it particularly well anyway. And at least you know, if you use a managed DB on a cloud provider, you're at least someone who knows somewhat of what they're doing has set that up and configured it in such a way that all you need is a connection string and to know roughly what CPU and memory you need, right? So
2: surely that's a step ahead of a developer spinning up a MySQL instance somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I get your point, but I, I still think if you follow that course, you project that 10 years down the line. I think, you know, there's like five DBAs in the world and they work for each of the five big companies. Maybe somebody would say that's not a bad thing because I don't like databases anyway. But, you know, I, I just think that will then backfill into the projects as we go because the less people you have contributing to advanced projects, like, I mean, who knows how to configure an X config right now? Like, you used to have to know how to do that. You don't have to do that anymore. That's no big loss. I, I mean, I'm not chomping at the bit to write those configs again, but I do think there is a danger where various companies could, in get into a position where they are in exceedingly powerful positions i mean i think they're probably there already for the most part and smaller providers can get crushed by them people can get bought into their not proprietary but you know as good as if you're doing one thing for one provider you're kind of doing it that way or you're going to have to hire a different employee to do reprogram everything etc i think it's not a good end route for us in the in the long run yeah. And I think I find myself agreeing with you on a lot of
1: the stuff about, you know, not keeping your skill set specific to one cloud provider. You know, I would hate to become a specialist in cloud provider A. And then, you know, in five years time, cloud provider B is like the new Kool Aid. And I don't know anything about it, but I think there is, there's something to be said for avoiding where possible using some of those technologies that are going to tie you into a specific vendor or are going to tie your application into a specific ecosystem. And that's something that I'm quite big on, you know, for better or for worse in terms of my employer. But I think if you're building your application in such a way that it is tied into a specific cloud provider, you are going to run into those issues. I mean, there are certain applications, right, that are very heavily regulated, and you might need to, in certain instances, run those on-premises, and I think that kind of portability is really key. You know, you see some of the big services from, you know, the cloud providers, they've got things like serverless databases and stuff, and my personal preference would be, you know, don't interface directly with whatever API that serverless DB is giving you but use some shim that gives it compatibility with something that you know how to manage and that you could
2: manage in-house if you needed to in the future. I don't think you're very common though. I think everybody is, oh, I got the latest cert in whatever and I'm now going to do that thing and off they go. I think there is a real danger in, you know,
1: my application is written to run on Cloud Provider X's storage or Cloud Provider X's serverless compute And then suddenly, you know, cloud provider, I mean, it hasn't happened in the past, but there is a real danger that it could happen, right? Cloud provider X says, on serverless compute, I now have a monopoly. Now that everyone's bought into it, I'm going to raise my prices. And then, yeah, you are kind of up Creek without a paddle then, because your specific application cannot run somewhere else without a reasonable amount of re-architecting. I probably am more uncommon in that. But I do see with the customers that I work with on a daily basis, at least some awareness that there will be, you know, or well, there could be a point that they need to run their application somewhere else. And I'm seeing that more and more as time goes on, I think, is a trend towards, okay, we're running this on, you know, Azure today, but how can we run it on GCP, you know, in two years' time? And I think that's where a lot of people you're kind of seeing a push into containers and stuff. And although there is this trend to move away from things like Kubernetes to kind of you know, serverless containers, or at least you know, containers where you don't manage the compute behind it, at least you could, with a relatively trivial amount of effort, pick those up and run them on-prem or in a different cloud provider or on a developer's laptop or wherever you need to.
0: Well, it sounds like you two could talk about this all day. Maybe you should take it to LateNet Linux Extra at some point. Maybe we will.
1: Yeah, we could do that. Okay,
0: this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets training for IT professionals, or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late-night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalised learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night Linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com late-night Linux. Let's do a bit of feedback then. Alex writes, In episode 138, I noticed you were talking about open-sourced apps, turning into a more successful one. And I think that Kai OS fits that criteria perfectly. It's based on Firefox OS and tweaked to work on feature phones. It's now quickly gaining popularity in developing countries.
2: A shooter went over my neck there as I just thought of Firefox OS, (laughs) given (laughs) given I bought two of the goddamn
3: things. (laughs) It's not hard to be more successful than Firefox OS.
2: (laughs) No, it isn't.
0: But this isn't quite what we were talking about Mm. because, again... This is a perfectly legitimate but failed project, Firefox OS, that wasn't trying to scam anyone. And that lived on as KaiOS, which I've actually tried and is totally solid as far as I can see. I can see why it's successful on feature phones. But it's not quite what we were talking about. And you, Alex, are not the only person who wrote to us about this. A few other people did. Okay, Paul says, one of you asked, why should anyone who isn't able to install Linux use it? If I'd say to my mum she should install Windows on her own, she wouldn't know how to do it. Is she allowed to use Windows now? I don't really see a difference. Linux Mint, Zubuntu, Pop! OS and Elementary OS offer beginner-friendly interfaces and offer almost all tools my mother would need. I wouldn't push a beginner to Arch Linux, but there are distributions around with a similar entry barrier compared to Windows. My mum is not tech-savvy, but able to follow instructions and able to describe what is on the screen. I'm pretty sure that I'd be able to guide her through the process of creating a bootable USB and installing Linux
1: over the phone. I think he should record his efforts there. (laughs) I'm pretty sure there's been YouTube videos of that. Yeah, I think that if I was to try and talk my mum through installing any operating system over the phone, regardless of if it was Windows, Linux, Mac OS... Probably struggle to get her past press F12 to enter boot menu, to be honest. I struggled with that myself. Is it F2? (laughs) Is
0: it delete? Who knows? Press them all. Yeah, exactly. And then you end up in that loop. And if you've already installed Windows and you're doing a dual boot, then it just fucking boots into Windows and takes ages. And then you have to wait for it to boot and then reboot it, advanced startup,
3: all the rest of it. That's what the reset key is for. (laughs) Pro tip use a webcam on your mum and the computer at the same time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have talked people through it over the phone, relatively technical people, not my mum. But I think the point stands that it's not fair to say that the installation should be a barrier to entry because you can set someone up with a working, already installed Linux system who doesn't know how to install it, who can perfectly well get on with it.
3: Yeah, and I think, it, I think it's wrong for us to kind of limit people using Linux to only people who can install it anyway. You know, it should be for everyone. Yeah, I mean,
1: most people aren't installing whatever OS they're using. If it's macOS or Windows, right, they go to Curry's and buy a machine, press the power button and use it. So I don't think it's fair to limit the use of Linux to just people who install it. And we probably should be fostering more mainstream Linux desktop availability that's not Chrome OS.
0: Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when hopefully we'll be back and there'll be plenty to talk about in the news thanks for joining us Gary and uh, people should definitely check you out on Late Night Linux Extra eh? yeah why not we've recorded a few episodes now it seems to be alright excellent salesmanship there Gary well done anyway until then I've been Joe I've been Phelan I've been
1: Graham I've been Gary see you later